You're listening to And hey, you are listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we are discussing The Imaginary Lives of James Ponicky by Tina Maccaretti, which is our July 2023 book club pick. Um, as always, Books and Boba is supported by our listeners on patreon.com slash booksandboba, where you can join and support the Books and Boba book club, um, while also getting access to our members-only Discord and monthly bonus episodes. Um, I guess with that said, shall we get into our book club discussion? Uh, yeah, before we start, just some trigger warnings. So um, there is sexual assault in the book, and also... Um, some homophobia. I mean, this book takes place in 1846, and this book is about a gay indigenous boy in Victorian London. So you can imagine uh, how they do not take kindly to uh, gay characters. Yeah, and also um, a spoiler warning for anyone who has not read the book yet. Um, in our book club discussion, we do discuss the book's plot in its entirety. Um, so if you have not finished the book, um, you will be spoiled. So with that, um, Rira, let's get started like we always do with the book jacket description of our book. So begins the tale of James Ponike, orphan son of a chief, ardent student of English, wide-eyed survivor. All the world's a stage, especially when you're a living exhibit. But anything can happen to a young New Zealander on the savage streets of Victorian London. When James meets the man with laughing dark eyes and the woman who dresses as a man, he begins to discover who people really are beneath their many guises. Although London is everything James most desires, this new world is more dark and dazzling than he could have ever imagined. Yeah, so this story is a Victorian set coming of age that follows the adventures of um, Hemi James Ponike. Um, and it really reminded me of, uh, and this is going to be funny because as listeners of the show know, um, if there is a film adaptation of a classic work, there's a pretty good chance that I've watched that instead of actually reading um, the classic book. And this story definitely reminded me of the um, Dev Patel-led um, the Personal History of David Copperfield, the color-conscious adaptation of Charles Dickens' um, semi-autobiographical novel, um, David Copperfield, um, which I have personally never read. Yeah, I've heard that it was very uh, Dickinsonian. I've never read Charles Dickens. I mean, I am a very, you know, it, you think that I am a very literary person, but I've actually <laughs> avoided reading a lot of classics that you would read in English 101. Um but yeah, this is a story that um, I feel like I've seen a lot when it comes to uh, period pieces and also like diaspora literature. I mean, it's just in the nature of like what happens when someone who is a fish out of water comes to a big city and you add that layer of being a diaspora and it's like, OK, well, it's someone who is now at the center of the empire and how, you know, how there is a violence to colonization. And I thought this book did a really good job um, just 
showing like just having the main character hold up a mirror to Victorian society and being like, <laughs> are you sure that we're the ones who are savage when you have such poverty, when your city is filthy, when people are suffering and your wealthy class is able to afford all this luxury when like you have all of these things that you have stolen from other countries, but you don't even value like the meaning of them. So I thought it was a very um, interesting theme that we have seen in uh, diaspora literature over and over again. But it was it was nice to to have it be from like a Maori perspective because we have read authors uh, of like Pacifica and uh, Oceana descent on this podcast, but like not many. Um, and like that's partially due to like distribution because we do check like, OK, like when was this book published? Is this is it modern? Does it reflect like modern issues that uh, people who are indigenous face in their countries? Um, is it something that people can actually borrow at their libraries. So I was pleasantly surprised that this book came out in 2018. And uh, despite it being, despite it taking place in Victorian London, as an American reader, I'm like, oh, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, that are reminiscent in our current day society. I mean, to be fair, a lot of the current ills of society especially when it comes to like white supremacy and classism all kind of stem from imperial england right like we've never like the world has not gotten over it like america kind of inherited all those issues because by nature of being like originally from that same empire right so i think it's interesting that this is like a very like it's a classic coming of age story following a boy from like his childhood to like becoming an adult man, but told from this perspective of like a marginalized person in an empire who like kind of has to get over their idealization of civilization. Right. Because a lot of um, James or Hemi's um, growth throughout the book is coming to terms of like this culture that he has idealized is not as great as he thought it would be. And in fact, like, causes a lot of harm to the people that he identifies with most. And he's a character who is constantly displaced. So in the beginning of the story, we find out that his village was invaded by, by a warring tribe, so by a rival tribe. And uh, pretty much his entire family is wiped out except for his father, who is the chief. And his father puts him in the care of a missionary uh, house. So he grows up learning English, uh, reading the Bible and all of that stuff. So he's already removed from like his heritage and he's displaced again when he um, goes into a white town. <laughs> and yeah, he runs away from the mission because he wants to like, I guess. Well, his father was killed. That's one. And it was just like, well, where do I belong now? Like, do you, it's like, do I think I can find my father's tribe, even though they're scattered? Will I be able to find uh, a place that I can belong in? So originally he leaves to find his people, but he stumbles upon a white town where there's 
no person of color. And he, you know, he makes himself useful and he's kind of seen as like this novelty, you know, it's like, oh, wow, like a Maori boy who can speak perfect British English and is able to write and and has like darling stories and all that. But then he's displaced once again because um, he meets a Maori tribesman who comes to the town in order to, you know, trade for um, supplies. But due to a misunderstanding, um, he gets killed by um some civilians in that town. Yeah. What did you think about that scene? Because to me, it really it really reminded me of one of the early scenes in Art of Quan's Babel, where um, the main character, Robin, um, stands by as one of his fellow um, countrymen gets verbally abused by a ship recruiter. Um, and Robin, even though he has the ability to um, intervene because he's able to uh, speak both languages, um, refuses to out of fear. And this definitely has like similar vibes where um, Hemi might be able to defuse the situation, but is so afraid to risk his own safety that he just stands by and watches this man get killed in front of him. Yeah. And yeah, like this book really reminded me a lot of Babel, not only because of the setting it takes place in not Victorian England. I don't think I don't think Babel takes place in Victorian England. I don't remember. But um, it, it touches on the same themes, right? The violence of colonization and aligning yourself with white supremacy so that you could have privileges and comfort. So, yeah, like I think this is a this is an experience that a lot of not just Asian Americans, but a lot of diasporans face because you want because like once you flee from your country, whether it's by choice or by um, circumstances, you know, you want to survive. Survival mode kicks in and it doesn't really give you like collectivism is not at not a priority. Yeah. I mean, as a marginalized person or even like a indigenous person in a colonized country, um, you don't have the power, right? And, you know, for a lot of people, in order to survive, you have to you have to align yourself with whoever holds power in the current structure. And that's typically under, like, an empire, the ones with the guns, right? And you have to, you, you know, it's a lot of masking in society, you know? It's like in order to get what you need, in order to protect yourself, you need to portray... Uh, <laughs> pretty much the character that the dominant culture uh, expects you to be. Yeah. But after this act of violence, he kind of ends up leaving this settlement when he realizes that like, yeah, they, they don't, they don't like people like me. And ironically ends up traveling with the tribe of the, the dead warrior um, who just so happens to be probably maybe the tribe that killed his father. Killed right? his par- Yeah. Killed mm-hmm. his parents. That's right. I thought it was interesting how, um, you know, language is used in the book because you see him talk in um, his tribal dialect and then, you know, he switches to English. And every time when he switches, he like he he notes that like he's very rusty and he's like, oh, my God, I have to relearn how to be part of this community again and um, I feel like that is something that we go through a lot as Asian Americans, you know, like when you have to like code switch back and forth and um, 
you know, like it's not until you go back to the motherland that you realize, oh, wow, like I've lost a lot of of like my cultural knowledge or like my language. And it's like very alienating. Especially the fact that like a lot of these missionary schools and a lot of these, you know, colonial schools, they're designed to like take away your, your indigenous identity because one of the goals of empire is to make everyone the same. Like, throughout the book, it's not always at the top of his mind, but then, no, throughout the book, he thinks back to his father and how, like, he's, like, ashamed of, like, all the things that he's losing from his culture. Yeah, and at the same time, he realizes that his father put him in the hands of missionaries in order for him to have a leg up in society. <laughs> so it's it's, like, contradictory, you know? It's like, I want to be just like my father i want to keep my cultural heritage however my parents put me in an impossible situation where i'm in the care of people who want to erase my identity and that is that is the main way of survival in uh, a white society yeah so i thought that was like pretty uh you know pretty relatable uh yeah (laughs) even in current day society um and then so they end up in what is modern day Wellington. I forgot what the the name of the port is called in the book, but that's when they meet the artist. <laughs> yeah, in uh, Tina's acknowledgments, uh, she says that the artist was inspired by a real life historical figure, George French Angus, and he he too went to New Zealand and South Africa to. Um, pretty much sketch out like indigenous people and uh, the objects that they have. But of course, he doesn't know anything about their culture. (laughs) He's just drawing for the sake of his own career and to further his own uh, fame. So, um, yeah, but James is enamored by the artist because of his tools, because of the fact that he represents everything that he wants. He wants education. He wants to see the world. And he sees this as a chance to escape from New Zealand and broaden his horizons. Yeah, I mean, he fancies himself a modern, you know, British subject. And he seizes this opportunity to, you know, pursue his goals of seeing the world by agreeing to become um, the artist's living exhibit of a Maori um, chieftain's son, um, which sounds real sketch, right? Yeah, if you look at like old documents from like Victorian England, you'll know that there's a lot of living exhibits. You see people who have um, who are considered freaks on display and just for the amusement for. Uh, the noblemen and the middle class in Victorian England. And yeah, it's it's a form of, you know, payment. It's like, okay, like I'll be, I'll pretty much be your monkey in a cage and dance and do everything that you tell me to as long as I get free passage and, you know, board and food and an opportunity to further my education it's a lot of compromising yeah i mean it's like indentured servitude but your servitude is being like a a sideshow at a like wasn't even the museum it was like a gallery that he was posted in uh i i don't remember if it was like a gallery or a museum Mm. they're pretty much the same thing in my opinion (laughs) and you know part of what makes hemi himself attractive is the fact that he is the son of like a chieftain. Yeah, and it's, 
you know, like, I feel like if he felt like he belonged in the tribe that adopted him, he wouldn't have left. Like, there's a question of, like, would he have gone to England if he felt accepted into the tribe, if he didn't feel like an outsider? I feel like if he had never gone to the missionary school. He might have stayed with the tribe, right? But he's already already been tainted by colonial education to like aspire to be like white or white adjacent, right? Yeah. yeah. I really like the fact that like his tribe, like they understood like the power of written word. They were like, okay, we don't have, you know, we don't have a lot of paper, but you know, write etch the words on barks, on on leaves like there is permanence in that and that is something that you know is quite the treasure in their community and for James he's you know like he's just like well I don't want this to just be like a rare treasure I want to be able to write whenever I want and have that privilege all the time so yeah so Hemi follows this um artist man do do we ever get his name he's just the artist right i mean no he has like I mean, a yeah, he, analog uh, in real life but um i think his sister uh miss angus she does call him george okay but in the book he's you know he's called the artist that's right. how Hamie slash james sees him yeah and so i really love the scene of him arriving into london and his first thought is man this place stinks because the Thames is just full of like poop, right? Yeah, it's full of sewage and uh, there's just everything is covered in smoke because this was back during like the industrial <laughs> period where um, they didn't quite put people's health as priority. It was all about like steel and progress and architecture. Yeah. So already he's like noticing all the like inconsistencies between how London and how England presents itself and the reality of people who live in London. But he also knows that he can't really say these things because he discovers very early on that white people are very fragile. They can't like take the cognitive dissonance of what they present and what thing, how things are. Yeah, I have a quote right here. He says, it seemed the game here was to perpetuate fine sensibilities, not dirty the conversation with descriptions of street grime and mudlarks. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was interesting that, you know, he notices the class divides right away and he feels more comfortable with uh, the lower class. He notices that um, there's some kind of camaraderie, like he feels more close to those in the lower class. Yeah, or at the very least, he feels like he can be more himself, right? He doesn't have to walk around on eggshells and put on that like high society etiquette uh, for fear of being um, ostracized or kicked out. Um, and, you know, this is also the point where we meet the Angus family, which is the family of the artist that brought him to London. And I got to say, I was pleasantly surprised that they um, were pretty accepting of Hemi. Uh, the father in particular, Mr. Angus, seemed to be, like, by all accounts, a pretty progressive Englishman. Like, he still says some cringy things sometimes. Like, uh, oh, look what can happen if we, you know, give people, like, a proper education. But for the most part, they act as allies, which I was I was really, like, waiting for the shoe to drop with this family. Like, like I just, I didn't trust them, but um, they, they surprised me. Yeah, I was expecting him to be kicked out. 
like as soon as the <laughs> living exhibit uh time period was like like pretty much uh, like after his contract ended i expected him to be kicked out because that was the transaction but they actually keep him in the household and i and their main concern is the fact that he's hanging out with poor people like (laughs) unseemly characters it's not so much that he's like a maori boy it's it's more like hey yeah don't hang out with poor people because it reflects badly on us (laughs) and he he also like mentions how it's weird that the upper class ladies have a different code like they live by another set of rules compared to uh, women of the lower class and um he was just like that's just so weird because in back back when i was with like my people in new zealand like you know women were in you know very independent roles. They were respected. They were able to, you know, um, move throughout their society without, like, being concerned about being compromised. It was, like, a very weird concept to it. (laughs) Yeah, and that's not to say that the Angus family didn't have the weird vibes. You know, a lot of those different conversations revolved around things like, what is savagery? And the family still, you know, is, like, they're not exactly putting like their reputation or, you know, uh, position on the line um, to fight for equal rights. But I was glad to see that Hemi was able to land in a family that was able to provide support and shelter, um, which, you know, pr- probably wasn't the case for a lot of people in his situation. Yeah. And, you know, you get the sense that he I, he understands the privilege that that he is that he has he's like oh my gosh like i'm in the care of a family that's actually decent i actually do have um like decent board and and food there's there are other living exhibits that you know have been swindled have been abused and um he also understands that black people are treated than less treated less than uh compared to him and it's you know he He's starting to learn the hierarchies within not just like the upper class white society, but also like underground, lower class, people of color, pretty much the hierarchy of outsiders. And it's really it was really interesting to read from that perspective, you know, someone who like don't know the rules and he's learning. Yeah. And so this is the part of the book where he works and lives as a living exhibit um, representing um, the Maori, I guess, culture um, in this like art gallery or museum. And essentially he's just like kind of a living, ask me anything kiosk where he answers questions about his culture asked by like the, the British people coming into the the exhibit. Yeah. He, um, I thought it was interesting how he said, I suddenly had a strong sense of myself as a native New Zealander, as if being abroad gave me claim to the whole of the country that I had not felt when I was there. <laughs> so so he's like, wow, I like I have to really play up my nativeness, um, <laughs> which I didn't even feel when I was with other native people yeah. in order to uh, survive in this environment. It's- and. Yeah, it's just very it's very interesting in the <laughs> yeah. position that he's in. He like felt the the pressure to like represent his people well. And he got the rep sweats. Yeah, he definitely <laughs> got the rep sweats. He definitely was like, oh man, whatever I do, that's what people will think Maori people are. Right? Well, that's like his first 
like that that's his first thought but as the exhibit goes on he learns that you know people aren't there to learn about maori culture they already come into the exhibit with their own preconceived notions and they're just you know want confirmation yeah. or want to feel like they're cultured i did love that like i did love the scenes where he just like was just messing with like the more um let's say racist um, patrons of the of the exhibit um there was that one guy who like tried to claim that he was a cannibal yeah and he was just like you're lying about not being a cannibal i know better because i've you know read all these books and it's like <laughs> this is someone who is from that culture has lived there have you ever left england dear sir like yeah it just reminds guess, yeah. me of of like white people these days who are like, oh my god, I know so much about Korean or Japanese culture because I consume their media. And it's like that media yeah. doesn't reflect <laughs> the society that that the real people are from. It's just it's just nonsense. Yeah, who'd have thought representation matters would be a theme in this book as well? <laughs> um uh. But yeah, through this exhibit, he also, this is how he meets um, Billy Neptune, who is a, how would you describe him? He's not exactly a playboy, but he's kind of like a, like a cool kid, right? A cool kid. <laughs> One of the cool kids. And Hemi is drawn to Billy for, um, for reasons that we'll find out later. Um, but he's also drawn to him because Billy represents like a side of London society that resonates more with Hemi because you no know, Billy is some, also someone who kind of lives in the margins, right? Yeah, Billy grew up with like a very rough childhood. His dad died and because his older brother already had a job and was willing to take him on, he was able to make a living by working as a cabin boy on ships and that was pretty much the only reason why he wasn't on the streets. And it was not, you know, being a sailor at that young of an age is is not ideal. It's not a great environment to, yeah. to, to be a kid in. Yeah, and um, Billy becomes Hemi's guide to, I guess, the Victorian England um, underground counterculture. You know, he takes him out drinking and dancing and introduces him to his girlfriend, Henry or Henrietta, who is a woman who enjoys wearing um, men's clothes. And I did like that meeting Henry and learning about how Billy and Henry first met becomes um, Hemi's own like gay awakening uh, when he like imagines that when Billy first met Henry and was attracted to her, um, she looked like a guy. Yeah, yeah. And like when that scene happened, I was super excited because I was like, oh, my God. We have gay characters, gay characters of color and indigenous backgrounds. Like that is like amazing when it takes place in, uh, you know, 1846 uh, England. <laughs> so I, I was just like, this was not what I expected. But I, yeah, like I, I got excited. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought it was amazing, too. But um, also like this book isn't exactly a comedy. So I got really worried, too. Yeah. This was one of those situations where I was reminded of Babel because Babel also had women who were um, dressing up as men in order to protect themselves and also to have like more opportunities. And you also have, um, you know, the main protagonist who is a person of color who, uh, you know, is part of the diaspora, find out that he is gay and is exploring that with yeah. his best friend. So 
Yeah, and I really enjoy this part of the story where um, Hemi is just hanging out with Henry and Billy, exploring the city, um, being young and having fun. You know, um, I like the community that he builds with um, not only his friends, but also his fellow living exhibits. And it was interesting to read, um, you know, Hemi's experience as he's finding this community that, like, accepts him and like challenges him but at the same time feeling super alienated as well because of his developing like one-sided crush with billy his best friend alongside like coming to terms with his sexuality yeah i i was also worried i was like oh man is like i'm really excited that there are gay characters in this book but also like is there gonna be gay misery like are people (laughs) gonna be fridged like i am concerned about people's safety in this book um and like for a while later on i was like oh gay misery yeah it's happening like a lot of angst is happening and you know like i expected it but also i was like it can't end like this (laughs) <laughs> if the entire second half of the book is just going to be, you know, um, gay people of color suffering, then, like, I don't know what kind of message that brings that brings out, you know? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> is it historically accurate? Yes. But also, <laughs> this is fiction, and I don't know. Like, yeah, I feel like we've read... I feel like so much of literature featuring gay characters, they are just like in such misery. They are fridged. They like it's almost like trauma porn in a way. And I was really hoping that it wouldn't go into that territory. And it kind of kind of tricked me for a second, but I'm glad it didn't go there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it would have been nice to see if Hemi would have been able to find like whatever the underground gay community was in Victorian England back then. But that's not what we got. And that's not something that like Hemi would have sought out on his own. Right. And, you know, um, throughout the story, Hemi himself is a very like he's a very selfish character. Right. He's portrayed as someone who you know looks out for himself first and foremost. And, you know, combine that with the poor impulse control of like a youth. Um, he ends up blowing up his own situation. And, you know, he in the heat of a moment in the middle of a party, um, kisses um, Billy Neptune, his best friend, um, is caught by Henry and inadvertently starts a chain of events that results in Henry and Billy being beaten up by a group of like British gentlemen on the streets that happens off screen. Well, not really off screen because we do get the we do get the flashback um, afterwards in the next chapter. Um, and it leaves Henry in a coma. And like this is one of the scenes of like very extreme violence that did feel a little like trauma porny, right? Yeah, it, it, in a way. But I kind of understand why Tina put it in because it's like to show like gentlemen, quote unquote, these young men who are supposed to represent the creme de la creme of society and who are, are like educated at Oxford and whatnot. They are just terrible, lowly creatures. <laughs> who are, you know, pretty much more savage than the people they consider savage. So it is a representation of, like, how uh, civilized people are not actually civilized. (laughs) So I, I understand why it was in there, but it was very, very tough for me to read. Yeah, and this idea of what is savage and what is civilized is a major theme of the story. And... In general, like a theme of the relationship between indigenous people and like Western empires, right? And 
it's really interesting. Like if you think back to you know even when um, Hemi encountered that um, warrior at the the settlement, I think it was Holy Cross. And, you know, the warrior was killed by the white townspeople, even though all he wanted was some food and some supplies. And even thinking back to the um, the argument that Hemi had with that British uh, man as a living exhibit where he was being accused of cannibalism uh, because that's what savages do. And the general idea that like savage people are violent by nature and that is just how they are. But the people doing the violence in this entire book are the white people, the people who are considered civilized. Yeah. And um, I thought it was really interesting how, you know, Billy and Henry, they kind of have this unique relationship where they've been together for a while, but neither one is willing to settle because, uh, you know, they want their independence. And I thought it was really interesting how Henry you know, like when she has like that confrontation with Billy after um, Hamy kill uh, Hamy kisses Billy, she's like, "I don't want to go back to dressing like a woman. Like I like dressing as a man. I like being independent, being able to have um, have like my own rights, being able to have my own way, and I just don't want to be put back into." the constrictions of being a Victorian uh, woman. <laughs> and that's kind of what Billy wants and neither are willing to compromise. And I thought that was um, like, I thought that was like a really good yeah. layer to Henry's character. Yeah. Because given the time period, women don't really have a lot of rights at this point in time. Right. Like sure. The monarch is a queen, but I don't think like women don't have the right to vote. They don't have the right to own property. Yeah, yeah, they don't have any of those rights. And uh, the only way you could really live, quote-unquote, comfortably is if you marry well. And once your husband dies, and it's like, well, how are you going to make income, you know? Yeah. And there's also a question of, like, well, how are you going to uh, raise your kids in a society where, you know, they don't really give a shit about, you know, children. <laughs> they don't really give a shit about health care. And... It's like, okay, well, that's pretty much the society that we live in today. They really don't give a shit about our, you know, our health, um, our way of living. Like how, like, it's so hard to survive. I mean, they're probably thinking, man, things were much better back in Victorian times. Why can't we go back to that? No, never time travel if you're a person of color, especially if you're queer. Just don't do it. Just, you know, it's (laughs) never go back because you think... Like, it's only good for people who are from families of generational wealth, you know? Yeah. And so Henry being injured creates a rift between Billy and um, Hemi, um, both because Hemi kissed Billy without his consent, but also that the fallout resulted in Henry um, becoming comatose. And so um, they have like this third act breakup um, segment where Billy cuts all ties with Hemi, but Hemi um, still pines over him. And, and, you know, in order to deal with his feelings and also his guilt, because he also blames himself for Henry getting hurt. um, He signs himself up to um, go on a boat, right? Okay. So like what happens is that, um, you know, like the exhibit, the exhibition time, his contract is over. 
And, um, you know, everyone he cares about, like the other living exhibits, like Esme and Ernie, who are like the little people who had an exhibit alongside him, they're going to France. And he's like, well, I'm going to be left all alone. I have no friends. All of my found, found family members are leaving. So there's nothing for me here. And in order to stay with Billy, in order to repent, he, t- he goes to um, Mr. Angus and says, hey, let me work on one of your ships. I want to travel the world. But of course, you know, he didn't really think about that. Like he thought that he could just, you know, with time, Billy would forgive him. But once he gets on the ship, he realizes, oh, no, like, like Billy is not going to forgive him as easily and now he's stuck in a situation where um he's pretty much at the bottom of 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 the hierarchy and he's like okay well i have no protection anymore all the privilege that i had that protected me from um being abused that's all gone because he's on a ship yeah and i really like that in this final act we see some you know character growth from um, Hemi as you know on this boat where you strip away all all the layers that protected him and all of the white adjacent connections that he has and you know in order to survive he finds community in the black and brown like the non-white sailors on this crew you know he gets brought under the wing of the Chinese chef song um, and he you know gets his you know, he gets he has his first sexual experience with um, Ethan um, the black former slave. Yeah, his story is interesting because he's someone who uh, fled uh, from slavery and he was able to do that because he was in a port city in uh, the Caribbeans. And, um, you know, he clarifies to um, Hamey, like, even though I'm a quote-unquote free man i'm actually not free because the only way i can like actually make a living is to kind of do slave labor (laughs) and you know really like they just call it something different but it's exactly the same thing and the fact that england you know they banned slavery but it still exists in different forms and they still make their wealth from slavery but they don't want that to be in their faces like he pretty much like tells uh Hamey this being like you think the empire is your friend you think that it's going to be a better life for you but that's not the case yeah and so Hemi finds you know um comfort in the embrace of Ethan um but they see each other at great peril right like homosexuality is still not very like it's not accepted. Like it's still not accepted today, but um, especially so back then. And you know, they're eventually caught by the um, white vice captain who has already really been abusing Hemi um, throughout the voyage, and you know, exerting his power. And when Hemi and Ethan are caught, um, Hemi is tied up and punished um, violently by this vice captain. And you know, the sad part is, um, as he's being punished, Hemi just accepts it because he feels like this is this is his punishment for allowing um, Henry to get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it was really tough for me to read that scene where um, he is getting raped by the first mate. And, you know, it's it's very hypocritical because he's, you know, he's being punished because he engaged in, um, 
gay sexual activities, but then he's raped by the first mate. So it's just like, well, you're engaging in gay sexual activities. So it's just like, yeah, that, that was, that was just like messed up. That was so messed up. Um, and it was so heartbreaking that, you know, he thought that he deserved that, um, like he had like to serve penance for what he did to, to Henry. And it's like, I don't know. It was, it was just really tough for me to read. Yeah. And so he passes out from, from his ordeal. And when he wakes up, he finds that the ship is capsizing due to a storm, which, you know, he feels is karma for him, but I kind of feel like it's karma for the vice captain and the crew for being such dicks. But, um, as he floats um, in the ocean, still tied to that wooden beam, um, he starts thinking about all the people that he's let down and hurt, you know, he, as he's in the ocean. It's a very beautifully written um, section where it's kind of stream of consciousness. He's thinking about the ocean and all the people that he's left or has left him, like his mother, his sister, his father, uh, even Henry and Billy. Um, yeah, I mean, like he's reminiscing on his past and he's wondering, like, why did I decide to leave? Like, why did I think that I deserve to have a Victorian education? There's a lot of guilt tied to it. Yeah, he's thinking about all the things he gave up or all the choices he made in pursuit of like this colonial ideal and whether or not it was worth it. And you know, eventually he does wash up on the shore and is rescued by um, a black fisherman um, and his family, who I believe are escaped slaves themselves, right? Yeah, they were escaped slaves. Which, yeah, once again, he's saved by people, the kindness of strangers who live outside of like the capitalist or imperialist frameworks, right? Yeah, I mean, it's another case of, oh, like who is civilized and who is considered savage? Here are these uh, former enslaved people uh, people who you know are taking a complete stranger in and nursing him back to health at you know like they have children they have mouths to feed and it's like they're doing this without you know any expectations of you know repayment yeah and this family you know informs them that they're essentially squatting on this land that like as far as they know nobody owns um, and even if they do, it's not like valuable. You can't farm on it, but you can fish enough to support a family. So I thought it was a really cool, um, I guess, glimpse at like another version of what life is like on the margins of people who you know can't count on um, the civilized world to to support them. And so after Hemi recovers, he has to decide where he wants to go next. And um, this triggers like a really interesting internal conflict of what home is to Hemi. Right, is in New Zealand, but the tribe that he grew up in, was born to, doesn't exist anymore. Right, the country of his birth is no longer there because it's been colonized, taken over, and renamed by the British Empire. So, without that tether, um, what is home to him? And in the end, he decides to go back to London. Yeah, yeah, and really, that's like the only place that he can go to. He's like, well, maybe. Uh, the Anguses will, you know, take me in at least for a short while before I get like back on my feet. And this is when I got like really surprised by the, the Anguses actually taking him back in. And <laughs> I was just like, oh, they are 
you know. Yeah. Even though it was a transactional relationship in the beginning, there is some sort of uh, care. Yeah. I mean, the way that Mr. Angus put it was like, well, you helped my son create a successful exhibit, which led to more projects for him. So essentially, you did provide our family with monetary value. Um, But at the same time, I really like the fact that like the Angus's did seem like they had some progressive values, right? And, you know, in a few years, maybe could become better allies. Like right now, they're willing to, you know, um, provide shelter for this boy that they know personally. But, you know, you can tell that the Angstas definitely have a soft spot for Hemi. And I feel like if it came down to it, would side on the side of like progressive ideas and equality in the British Empire. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how the artist was the one who, you know, was actually in New Zealand and actually saw you know, Hamey as someone in the tribe, you know, like he witnessed him being an actual person, but he doesn't treat him as a person. He treats him as a means to his fame. He appropriates a lot of the artifacts that his tribe allowed him to sketch. And you would expect him to be, you know, an ally or more understanding, have empathy But it's actually Miss Angus in the Angus family who shows probably, actually, no, I think the housekeeper shows the greatest amount of empathy. But Miss Angus, like she at one point um, tells Hamie, like, I don't see you as savage. And I, and it's kind of like implied that you know, it took a lot of soul searching for her, (laughs) like her being like, oh, like, I don't think you were, I don't think you're savage now. And maybe I thought you were savage in the beginning when you first came into our home. But now that I've gotten to know you, I know that that was not the case. So she represents someone who kind of has to question her own upbringing and beliefs and, um, You know, she's in a position where, you know, she could help, but she has like very limited power because she is a woman in in a Victorian society. But a a true quote unquote ally in this book is probably Mr. Antrobus, who is a philosopher and he goes to the exhibit and he questions uh, Hamey on like, hey, like, is this something that you know, you agreed to do. Are you being taken care of? Why are you doing this? It seems like you have dignity. So (laughs) why are you like exoticizing your culture in order to, you know, make money? And he's also questioning his own um, privileges and also his worldview on what it means to be civilized and savaged. And uh, yeah, so you do have white characters who have uh, some form of redemption for the rest of their society. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I guess this brings us to the end of the book, which, you know, the book is written in, um, like, I don't think it's epistolary, right? Because it's not exactly told in letters, but it is implied that the book that we are reading are the written recollections of Hemi James Ponike. And 
It was a little weird and a little sad to read. Um, the last few passages of the book is Hemi reaching out to his descendants or the people who are reading this letter and wishing for them a more just and equal world. And you know, given the world that we live in, it's really not the case. But I do love that the final line of the book is, and if the world is not like that, feel free to you know give them shit for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you think that Billy was alive at the end? I feel like he is now like the Billy that we saw both in the first chapter and in the last chapter is kind of like the ghost of like Hemi's regret. That's how I read it. Like he's yeah, not- same, same here. Yeah. I mean, he's imagining. He's yeah. imagining that Billy is coming into his room after like everyone is kind of out of the house or sleeping. And I'm like, well, how is he sneaking into the house? I don't think that's <laughs> possible. So I think he's seeing a ghost because yeah. when he was uh, when he was shipwrecked, he you know he had all of these visions of uh, people he let down, people he loved and cared about, but turned his back on. So I'm just like, oh, like Henry is dead. That's that was like my uh, conclusion. So if Billy is being written this way, I feel like he's also dead. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was a little confusing because we do meet Billy in like the first chapter. But I'm pretty convinced that that was also a ghost at this point or like a figment of his imagination. Yeah, Yeah. I was actually pretty surprised to find out that um, Hamie is not like an old man by the end, you know, like, because at the beginning, like the prologue, he sounds like an old man. He sounds like someone who has, you know, lived a lifetime of regrets and bitterness and reflecting back on his youth. But actually, it's been barely like a year (laughs) since he came to London. I mean, that's what living under empire and colonialism does to you it puts you always on edge you're always pressured to perform and that constant stress does age people and it really does feel like hemi did live like several lifetimes in like the short time that this book um encompasses i mean at the end of the book he's like not even 17 right no no definitely not (laughs) he's still a teenager yeah so i would yeah so i was really surprised because when we read books that are kind of like written like oh like back when like listen to my story and <laughs> you know this is how i grew up and i hope things are different for you in the future you like you think that they are old people when they're writing yeah their recollections but it's someone who is like very young and of course he lived through a lot of lives which is why the book is called the imaginary lives of james because he had to reinvent himself over and over again. Yeah, I guess with that, any any last thoughts about um, this book? Um, we didn't mention him, but there's a scene where Hamy and the artists are invited to like this conference, I guess, filled with like doctors and like scientific men, and uh, he meets a black doctor of science, and you know he tells Hamy like. You know, I am in a weird position where I kind of feel like a living exhibit. I am a, you know, an educated black man and I always have to perform in front of like white people. And, you know, they're always saying, oh, you're so articulate. You're (laughs) like, look at you, like, 
like if you have a British education, you can be civilized. And, you know, he's telling Hamie, like, you need to find your purpose. My purpose is to find emancipation for my people. But, you know, you need to find a thing that you think is worth fighting for. And no free man is free unless every man is free. So he imparts like a great amount of wisdom and, you know, imposes all these questions on Hamey on his privilege and what he can do with his privilege. So I thought that was a very cool scene. That was probably one of my favorite scenes in this book. Yeah. And speaking of speaking eloquently, I, I did appreciate the fact that like for much of the book, he Hemi feels like him being able to speak posh English is a is of benefit to him. But then in the last scene when he's on the boat, the fact that he speaks proper English is actually what annoys the vice captain first, right? Like, oh you're you're Oh, a brown. you think that you're better than us? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed this book. It was it definitely touched on a lot of themes that I was both expecting from like a Victorian um, era set story about a Maori boy in England, and parts I didn't expect. Like, I didn't I honestly didn't expect like the gay identity storyline, and that was like really like it added a really cool dimension to the story as well. I like that it was written in the style of like a Victorian coming of age story. Um, I did read that this book has been optioned for a film adaptation um, by the same company that did um, Taika Waititi's um, Jojo Rabbit and uh, Hunt for the Water People. Yeah, it was um, optioned back in 2020. So yeah. I'm curious as to like where they are in uh, <laughs> development. But right now there's a writer's strike and an actor's <laughs> strike. So uh, I'm sure a lot of things have been put on hold. Yeah, well, I'm eager to see what form this project takes because I think it definitely um, could lend itself really well to um a film medium um much like the um like again the Dev patel um david copperfield adaptation um i would love to see that type of film but with um more overt references to colonization um but yeah i guess with that that'll do it for our uh, discussion of the imaginary lives of james ponike um by tina macaretti um if you have any feedback or thoughts about the book or our discussion um please let us know on our goodreads forums or on our books and Bible discord server which you can access if you are a subscriber at our patreon at patreon.com slash books and boba all right um before we call it an episode rira what are we reading for book club for the month of august all right, so we are reading Bitter Medicine by Mia Sai and is a Shansha-inspired contemporary fantasy where a Chinese immortal and a French elf navigate romance, family, loyalty, and workplace demands. So this is a paranormal adventure romance book. It is crossing a lot of <laughs> genres. I'm very excited to read this. Um, it came out... Earlier this year, it came out in March, so it is a brand new book. Um, Hopefully, it's available at a lot of libraries, but if not, I think there was a sale recently for audiobooks on uh, just like a cross-platform, so that is an option as well. Yeah. Looking forward to discussing this book with you. Love that it's a Shangsha and extra love that it's a contemporary setting. Um, sounds like a lot of fun. And we'll be discussing this book at the end of August. So as always, as you read the book, please let us know your thoughts on our Goodreads forums and on our Discord. Um, but with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like. A podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. Every week we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in Baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.